Hello, everyone. This is Joyce Davis, Pen Live's opinion editor, coming to you with another Battleground PA. Today, we're going to talk, of course, about the continuing reopening of Pennsylvania, but we really have to turn our attention also to the continued protests that are taking place throughout our country. So stay tuned. We'll have our trusted analysts, Rajat Harris and Jeffrey Lord, joining us to offer their insights and views. Stay tuned. We will be right back for another Battleground PA. This is Battleground PA, a pen live podcast discussing the issues that matter to Pennsylvanians and documenting the events in our state that will shape the battle for your vote in the 2020 presidential elections. Okay, I'm back. It's Joyce Davis. And listen, if you'd like to join us, you can always send an email to us at topics at battlegroundpa.org or you can also join us on Twitter and on Facebook at Battleground PA. So, hey, what? We're going to get started right now with what I know will be an enlightening conversation with whom? With Republican analyst Jeffrey Lord. Hello, Jeffrey. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> Good to have you well, there's, there's, Joyce, I want to start out and let you know there is very big news. Okay. I got a haircut. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You're going to have to figure out a way to do that. Well, we'll see you on Facebook Live later today. So, and it, I will... it only took an hour. Oh. <laughs> okay. I, had to, I had to wait outside with other people in chairs. Well, that's and then one by one, they made a list. And then you would be brought in and seated three seats, you know, with three seats between you and the next person. Oh, and good. then they would call you up, and and this was a shop, the Camp Hill Barbers, that has five barbers at work. Okay, well, <laughs> wait a minute before we go deeply, more deeply into that. Let's bring in Rajat, our our trusted Democrat analyst. Hello, Rajat. How are you today, Rajat Harris? I was doing great, but now I'm concerned about equality issues because I haven't been able to get a haircut yet. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Well, you know, as a world traveler, I never could depend upon a hairdresser. So I had to learn to do my hair myself, <laughs> which is what I do. I never could figure out where to go if I was in Paris or in London or even in uh, Prague. So I had to just take care of myself. So, hey, guys, I'm ready for any coronavirus. <laughs> Listen, let's let's get started. Maybe we'll start with the reopening. Listen, we have at least a little bit of news here. What is this? I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar, uh, no, but what is this about impeachment of the governor? State Representative Daryl Metcalf has introduced a resolution calling for the impeachment of Governor Wolf. I just saw that yesterday, I believe. He's apparently a Butler County Republican, Metcalf is, and he introduced the resolution Tuesday. It has 24 co-sponsors, and they've clashed, apparently, with the Democratic governor's management of the coronavirus. Guys, you can, all of our listeners can go to Penn Live and read this story, but what are your thoughts on uh, impeaching the governor because he took these actions to try to protect Pennsylvanians? Rajette? It's ridiculous. Instead of wasting time putting together resolutions, you know, he needs to be worrying about implementing policies to help people who are suffering health-wise and economically. You know, I used to work for the House caucus, and I remember 
a representative Metcalf. He got so unrowdy at times that the Capitol Police had to actually escort him out of the public hearings and meetings <laughs> and whatnot. Wow. So, you know, this is just another publicity stunt of his. Well, what are, you, what are your thoughts, Jeffrey? I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know him. But, you know, the sort of uh, first thing that flashed through my mind when I saw it is be careful what you wish for. If he succeeded in what he was doing, I do believe that would mean the lieutenant governor would become governor. Uh oh. <laughs> uh, well, well, there you go. There you go. I mean, from a Republican perspective, I don't think that's a good idea. I think the best thing is let Governor Wolf ride out his term and uh, make the case in the next uh, gubernatorial campaign. There you go. But I, honestly, I have to say that on all fronts, it looks like uh, the, the the Pennsylvanians, the, from everything we've been getting, have been quite pleased with the way both the governor and the secretary of health have been handling this. And yes, it's there's been a push, as there should have been, to when can we reopen, when can we reopen? But, you know, these were uncharted waters. They were uncharted territories. And for me, the, the most important thing is protecting life. But go ahead, Jeffrey. I, I will say this morning I was watching Congressman Steve Scalise, the uh, number two Republican leader in the House. And he has sent, as I understand it, letters to five state governors, of which Governor Wolf is one wanting to know why they didn't do something about, you know, putting COVID patients into nursing homes. Uh, you know, it was uh, Governor Cuomo, Governor Wolf, the governor of New Jersey, and two others. There were five state governors. And his point was that 45 governors, both parties, did it the right way. And these five governors did it the wrong way. And it resulted in a very high death toll in nursing homes. And he wants an explanation. Well, I think, I think well, that should definitely be looked at, obviously. Everything should be examined from the, you know, how it was handled from the beginning to now, especially for future pandemics. And we're still in the first wave of this one. But we can't forget, and this was just released in the news yesterday, that Pennsylvania is one of only three states where the cases are declining. They're not increasing. That's right. That, so, that's, you know, the governor and the secretary of health is obviously doing something that we are only one of three states. I mean, I think that's where cases point. are declining. But here's the thing, the virus is not over. I mean, I don't think you're going to get any logical or rational scientist or doctor to tell you it's over. But yet, at least some of the reports we have, Jeffrey, is that the vice president is trying to suggest that we've passed the worst of this. Or, or is that being misinterpreted? You tell us. I don't know. You know, and frankly, I just haven't had a chance to read it. He has an op-ed in this morning's Wall Street Journal on the subject. And I confess, I just haven't had a chance to take a look at it yet. I frankly think this is just going to be around until they get a vaccine. It may ebb and flow. I mean, the one that comes to mind from my own childhood is polio. Once they had the vaccine, that pretty well did in the polio epidemic, which had been going on and off in America for decades. I, I think we're probably in sort of the same situation here, at least as I understand it, it. This does not do well in heat. So fortunately, we're, you know, entering the warm weather phase and, and that may help. But who knows what's going to happen when we start to hit fall again and and things cool down. So one just hopes that the, all these pharmaceutical companies are hard at work on a vaccine. Yeah, the only thing that's concerning, I, I just don't know that we can say what it works well in because, I mean, it seems like in some parts of the country, they're hitting record highs, uh, daily rates. And I guess that's connected to people rushing to get back out there and to resume life as usual. But we are seeing increases in, in several parts of the United States. Luckily, as Rajat said, 
not here in Pennsylvania. And that would be worth taking a look. What did we do right so that we saved some lives? But I do want to bring up here and, and just pay a tribute right here to Lisa Burhanan, who is a Harrisburg resident who just died. She was 50 years old. She apparently came uh-huh. down with pneumonia and tested positive for COVID-19. This was a woman absolutely dedicated to basically helping our community and especially had a heart for helping people who were uh, survivors of, of people who had died from gun violence. Uh, I remember being at a forum with her and it was a lot of mothers and sisters of basically a lot of African-American men who had died from gun violence, not necessarily from police violence. And in fact, she was the coordinator of the Hasbro chapter of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. So the point I'm making here is that this virus is still taking a toll and it's pulling us, it's it's taking away some very great leaders in our community. I mean, just people who are grassroots, they're not looking for fame like we are (laughs) on the air, but they're looking just to work in the community. And it's a shame that I think more people don't realize you have to take the precautions, you have to wear the mask, you have to maintain the social distancing. So a lot of those issues were personal to Lisa, too, because her oldest son died from gun violence. So she had a personal experience uh, with the issue. But, you know, I think part of the problem is and we talk about this every week is when we don't see our elected officials being the example and wearing the mask. The problem isn't necessarily people going out more, but they're not wearing the mask. I have a neighbor, for instance, who had said that she was supposed to do a two week quarantine because she was uh, might have been exposed to the virus, I still see her going in and out without a mask. You know, we got to take this seriously. And unfortunately, we've become a very selfish society in the sense that if it doesn't personally affect us or someone within our inner circle, we don't think about how we will affect others as much. We've talked about a lot of the protests and whatnot, even though the reason the protests are happening is a great issue, you know, wear your mask. You had brought up about the vice president. I think a lot of that just has to do with the campaign season. They want to do these huge rallies again. We have a situation where they move the convention because they want, again, large groups of people. I mean, if you have to sign a form stating that you can't sue if you get the virus, that tells me I shouldn't be there. And I hope people are smart enough not to go. But just just so you know, I'm looking at the vice president's uh, piece this morning, and I'll just read you the headline. There isn't a coronavirus second wave. With testing, treatments, and vaccine trials ramping up, we are far better off than the media report. So that's, in essence, what he's saying. Yeah, but, but Jeffrey, I mean, honestly, I mean, I think you're smart enough to know we can't minimize this right now. That there are, we, we're looking at the numbers. We can't play politics with people's lives. This is just not, all right, why don't we stop here? Well, we're going to take a break and we'll come back and resume the conversation. I'll let you make your argument for why there should be a big Trump rally with a million people in just a second. So stay tuned. We'll take a break now. Okay, we're back, and Jeffrey was about to tell us why we should listen to the vice president and not expect a second wave, and things are better right now. Well, I mean, for the obvious reason that we've already been through this once, so we we have some idea of what what the drill is. I mean, no matter whether it's Pennsylvania or any other state, you have, you know, 50 governors that have 
been through the ringer on this, and they have some idea of, of what to deal with. I mean, I can tell you in a personal sense, you know, I'm now in uh, Cumberland County, which is a green county. On Sunday, we went to church. We did still sit in our cars in the parking lot. But for the first time in two months, we went over to the newly reopened Summit Diner in Lemoyne. You had to wear masks that were, you know, when to, to, to get in. Once inside, you couldn't have more than eight people in a in a grouping. And we happen to have that. Generally, our group is, you know, as many as 20 people sometimes, but we only had six this time. And we sat at the same table and we didn't wear masks. And there were a lot of other people that were not wearing masks. And we're all still fine. Well, you're fine for the time being. You've got to make sure you're 14 days before you can. But, but here- well, and we need to make sure that we adhere to the, the guidelines because Dauphin County is turning green uh, this Friday. Uh, right now, we're still yellow, but, you know, we still need to make sure we keep washing our hands. We use yeah, the sure. um, antibacterial, we wear our masks, and a lot of people are laxing on those. And that's one of the reasons we want to get excited that things are starting to open up, but we don't want the cases to go up and then everything has to close down again. And but I think the one that's thing, the, the one that thing that struck me, and I, I, had to, I had to laugh at the front page of the New York Post yesterday. The headline was Sick Hypocrisy. And they had two pictures. One was of a protest in Brooklyn over the weekend for trans people that drew 15,000 people. And there they are all crammed together some, somewhere in Brooklyn to protest. And they compared it to pictures of people dining outside somewhere in New York or the Hamptons. I don't know where. And that Governor Cuomo was furious about that. But no word yeah, about the protest. I saw some of those pictures. I think I think whether right or left or in between, if you're not, if you're ignoring the guidelines they're being given, it's a mistake, and it's going to cost lives. And and frankly, your behavior is responsible for this. And and so I'm just I'm just laying it out there. We all people are dying, and they're dying because people won't take the basic steps they need to take. Wear your mask. Social distance. That's whether you are a protest on the left or a protester on the right. And we've seen both out there. But I don't want to I don't want to get too upset because I, I, you know, but let's move on. (laughs) We got we got the rest of the year to go, Joyce. There's going to be a lot more to be upset about. (laughs) But let me raise a good point. You know, have we become too selfish? Have we I mean, in previous generations, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm glorifying previous generations. There just would have been much more of a sense of my responsibility to society. You know, I'm not just by myself. It's not just whether I can go and have a a nice dinner somewhere. But what is my responsibility to the other people around me? And I I, I fear we're losing that. It's it's just too individualistic. Well, and part of it is is we don't even know who our neighbors are anymore. And we talked about this last week. We don't know who's around us like we used to. You know, things have changed a lot in that sense. Well, let me just say this right now. Things have changed, and it is good some change, because as we're looking at these protesters who are out there are calling for change, and I think we're all, a consensus seems to be building that we really do need change. Change in attitudes, uh, racial attitudes, as well as a change in policing and criminal justice. We're hearing more and more people speak out about this, and I will tell you, guys, the latest is a cultural change. It looks like Quaker Oats has announced that there will be no more Aunt Jemima. So I don't know how you feel about that. Frankly, you know, I buy the, uh, 
the oatmeal and uh it's uh <laughs> you know a nice quaker uh, white guy on the cover. I, I thought Aunt Jemima was long gone, to be perfectly candid. No, well, no, they did a remake of her. And, you know, they went from having this red bandana covered hair woman, you know, right. to, uh, to a kind of more modern looking or at least a 50-ish. But still a stereotype. Yeah, but still, well, because it was based on the Aunt Jemima, this, you know, stereotype. It, the, it, it, what, where was her image? What, what, what product was it on at this point? It was pancake on pancake mix and the syrup. Oh, pancake mix. Got it. Yeah. And the yeah. pancake syrup. Yeah. Oh, for diet reasons, I've long since given up pancakes, but. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's the day-to-day it. stereotypes and biases, too, that it's going to be harder to correct. Um, I was watching a CBS special the other day, and they had a white guy, a, a dark-skinned black guy, and a Native American guy. And they sent them into, like, a rental office, for instance, uh, with hidden cameras. All three were treated differently. You know, the white guy was given more options, even cheaper rooms. The other two were treated very differently. They sent them into stores. Obviously, the Native American and the black guy were followed around more, asked more frequently, can I help you? They sent them to a couple of other places as well. It's the everyday biases and stereotypes that people of color deal with that we also have to address and, and we, that we can't we miss. Oh, employment. Employment was one of the other things that they showed. And there's actually a test online I'm going to send to both of you because when people will say outright that what's going on with the police right now is wrong, but what this test is, it moves so quickly, it shows your unconsciousness of what your biases are. It's, it's quite interesting, it's with CBS. And those answers quite differently were different than the ones that you could just check off on a paper because you can't think about it. Well, it's true. You know, there's a lot of unconscious biases and stereotypes that we have to deal with on a daily uh, basis as well. It's true, we all have unconscious bias. I mean, I think that's, we're all a part of this system that has basically taught us to believe that black people were somehow less than the other population. So we're all victims of that, I think. And I think deny, not denying it may be the first step toward it. But I will say that, so we've got the Aunt Jemima brand that's, that's taking another look. And frankly, that is a direct result, apparently, of this Black Lives Matters protest. Now, that's that's a small cultural thing. But let's look into what's now happening with the criminal justice system. We see judges coming out, speaking out about and accepting that, yes, there has been racial bias in the criminal justice system. We see the attorney general, I was going to have him on yesterday in the Facebook Live. We had some technical difficulties, but he has issued a press release uh, in which he says the Pennsylvania Chiefs of Police Association is joining him in calling for police hiring reform. And that is to do, as I believe, uh, Jeffrey, the president called for creation of a national database that would help track police officers who have records of abuse. Right, right. I mean, I, the president is unquestionably very serious about this. And I found it very interesting. He met with the families of some of the people who, who had been killed in, in this police situations, including the family, the wife of the young man in Atlanta. And she talked quite candidly afterwards that the president was, you know, very empathetic and, and very compassionate. And he really wants to do something. I don't have any doubt whatsoever that he does want to get something done here. 
You know, I, I mean, I hate to be quoting Rahm Emanuel here, but, you know, a crisis can be an opportunity. And I think this is an opportunity to get something done with this. And I think the president's just the right person to do it. And he is doing it. Well, I noticed he, he even got some praise from my pal Van Jones. So that, that should say something. Well, when well, he stayed on script, he did a good, he, you know, he did a good job. But when he went off script and started his bashing and made it political, talking about the party and this and the other, um, like he normally can't help himself to do. I think it took away from the moment that it, you know, it could be. This is definitely an issue that both sides can work together on for sure. And the National Registry is definitely needed because on the rare occurrence that police officer is fired, then he just goes to another town. And get you I mean, I, I, we, we talked about so this before. So that's definitely and, something that needs done. Yeah, I, and I and I just learned last night that the police officer that's involved in this latest incident in Atlanta Great did, job. in fact, have a previous problem. Uh, I mean, this just utterly baffles me as to how these people could could stay on a police force when they've had a situation like that. But see, here's now, the- when we talk about judges, though, that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, because judges are a large piece of some of the discrepancies also in the criminal justice system uh, with their sentencing. And that's when I brought up about the CBS experiment, those unconscious biases that sometimes creep into the mind when you're giving out sentencing. I'd love to know way... who put together that test. <laughs> no, I'm going to send it. I'm going to send it to you. Okay. I actually was about to take the test myself, but I just found it last night. Jennifer, um, but I'm going to send it to you and send it out to my not, committee. They are not unconscious bias. I mean, you're not arguing that we all don't have that, right? I mean, we're living in this society. There seems to be a consensus that we've got a racial bias problem in our society. Not that we want to have it, and not, but it can be unconscious. You may not realize it. Uh, you're not arguing against that, are you? Oh, I don't think there's enough focus on it. That's all. Um, I had a meeting just the, I had a meeting against it. Oh, oh, okay. You, you're not arguing against there being a No, I, I, mean, I mean, what I have argued is repeatedly is I think identity politics is quite open bias. And this is why I'm totally opposed to it. I just think it's the lineal descendant of segregation and slavery. And I just think it's terrible. And this is what is not helping this situation at all. Well, people have come But the issues are different, though. No, they're not. I mean, if you're, if you're dividing people and judging people by skin color, that's not different. That's very old. No, but targeting people based on different groups they identify with as far as policies that you want to support when you're running for office is one thing. You know, I always say we see all these marches and whatnot, but some of the elected officials there, show me a picture of your staff members, and then we can talk about, <laughs> you know, your commitment to not just diversity, but also inclusion. But but you see, there's where I think the mistake is, because I certainly know. But we do have differences, know... though, but we, do, but we are treated differently. We do but, know that there is disparities with hiring practices, with wages. With, with but, all of you know, that. again, so, and I'll go back to the, I mean, I, there's a zillion examples of this at this point, but I'll go back to Clarence Thomas. Thurgood Marshall resigns, the first African-American on the court, and the cry goes up from, from liberals, it's the black seat on the court. And so President Bush nominates Clarence Thomas, and they freak out. Why? Because Clarence Thomas is not a liberal, no, yeah, <laughs> but he's right. black. No, they freak out because I've had many conversations on this. They freak out, and this was during my day. 
because they didn't get the sense that he cared about the issues that were important to black people. Well, in other words, because he's not a liberal. That's what. But that's different from what I'm talking about. And they conflate being black with being liberal. And I think that's a mistake. They didn't need another person on the bench who didn't care about black people, whether he be black or white. That was the point. And well, he, but Jeffrey, that's, that's different than what I'm that, saying. That, I'm in other about, words, because he's not a liberal and, and, and because he doesn't care is, is a decidedly liberal but, but partisan Jeffrey, point of view. But Jeffrey, that's different than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not acknowledging that people are treated differently based on who they are. Yes, we all agree that that's wrong, but we can't fix it if we don't acknowledge it to be true. That's the problem with always pushing for a colorblind society because we see that we're different. We need to accept that and not but treat who cares? people differently because of that. Who people cares? Do it should care, be... But people do care. Like people do care. Let, let me tell you a story. The first time I realized I was black, I was in second grade. This little white boy sat next to me and said, I don't want to sit next to a black girl. You know what he's doing now? He's a teacher. Now, maybe he doesn't think the same way, but what if he does? What are those thoughts? That he's putting in. But, but in other words, he was taught mind. that by his. He was taught that clearly that's by his parents, about. who were who were point. into identity politics. But we can't ignore that. That it doesn't happen. The point is, it does, and we can't. Fix I, I'm it not until saying ignore it. it. I'm saying root it out. But, but you're not giving I mean, a solution. No more to identity politics. I mean, out. I just think it's the politics of race. But and that's it's, not it's, identity politics. That's just treating people differently or, or, or looking at them differently because of who they are. That's not necessarily politics. Okay, can that's, I that's part of our culture. Here? Can I refocus things here? Because I, I, I think this has been a good discussion, but I really want to go focus back in on the police issue and the police reform yeah. issue, because we are getting a sense that we do want police reform. Now, one of the questions that's come up is whether this chokehold should should be accepted by both parties, by everyone, to outlaw and ban chokeholds. That does not seem to be gaining traction, or at least the consensus is there, but the legislation doesn't seem to be moving, at least on the Republican side. What are your thoughts on that, on actually banning this chokehold, Jeffrey? Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea of banning it. Again, I, I go back to listening to Sean Hannity's martial arts instructor talking about, you know, the human anatomy and the most vulnerable point in in a human being is their neck. So obviously it would seem to me, I mean, he goes into great lengths about what can happen if you do this. And clearly what happens at the end of the day is you can kill somebody. So yeah, I I I just think we have to be extraordinarily careful about this kind of thing. So 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 let me ask you both this because I think we're closing in on our time here. But when you talk about this registry, here's the thing that I get stuck with, and I'd love to hear you guys debate it. Should that registry be available only to uh, law enforcement? So if you're going to be hired by the Minneapolis Police Department, you need to know what your record was in Harrisburg. Right. But should that be also available, that information to the general public or at least to the media? So if I want to do a story on the police officers in our region with the 10 highest ratings for police violence, should I have access to that information or not? Police officers are public servants. It should be available. Yes, I, I totally agree. I mean, they're, in that sense, they're no different than a state legislator or a congressman, senator, governor. They have a record. They're public servants. It should be open and transparent to the public. Absolutely. 
Oh, my goodness. I can't believe it. You both are agreeing on making it because that's a controversial issue. But you both are agreeing that you think the general public should know if the police officer patrolling their neighborhood has has 10 investigations that have been confirmed of, of his misconduct. You bet. The public servant is the key there. I mean, they're paid by taxpayers. The taxpayers have a right to know. Got it. Got it. Well, This is another first that you both agree. Well, listen, guys, let me ask you this. As we look forward in the coming weeks, do you see that we're going to have any further action at locally or nationally on police reform? Do you see anything? I mean, we're seeing another man has died in in, in Atlanta. Lord, I don't know what will happen if, if yet another problem exists. Or, you know, someone else has to suffer a death because of um, police violence. So i just like to get your thoughts on where you think all of this is going. You want to start, Jeffrey? I do think that something will come out of Congress for sure. But even, I almost want to say more important is what happens in the 50 states? I mean, whether it's Pennsylvania or California or Indiana, they need to have their, their act together when it comes to dealing with police. Because after all, at the end of the day, it's a local situation. And I think our situation in Harrisburg has been well handled by Chief Carter. And that, at the end, is where this rests. So uh, I, and I realize it's long and tedious, and you know that's part of the American system here. But local governments, state governments, uh, have to get their act together. Which, by the way, I, I don't think the chief would agree to uh, having that registry open to the general public. And he certainly doesn't agree with the issue of a citizen review board. But, Rochette, why don't you go for it? <laughs> Tell us what you think. Which, which is all the more reason why we should do it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The federal government needs to present universal guidelines that all states have to abide by. When you bring up chokeholds, in some places it is illegal to use on your local government. That's why if it's passed on a national level in those places it's not there, it will automatically become illegal as well. We can't forget that when things aren't done on the, on the federal level, each area is left up to their own you know, regard. Sometimes that's good. In a situation like this, I think we need uh, national leadership on it. Locally, there will definitely be movement, um, I believe, on the uh, state level as well. I can't speak for all 50 states, obviously, but here in Pennsylvania, I definitely think we're already seeing movement on the local level, and there's been lots of proposals on the state level that I expect to be taken up when session comes back into into play. Well, one thing is for sure, we will have a lot to talk about for a few weeks in the future, I'm thinking, between the coronavirus and the protests and police reform, and who, who knows what is coming our way next. But I want to thank both Jeffrey Lord and Rajette Harris for giving us their insights once again on another Battleground PA. And we look forward to seeing you guys next week as we will continue the discussion of what's happening in these unprecedented times. Again, if you want to join us, you can do so at topics at battlegroundpa.org or join us on Facebook or Twitter at Battleground PA. Stay tuned, guys. We will have a lot to talk about next week. See you then. Bye. This was Battleground PA. Be sure to rate and subscribe to us so you don't miss a beat. Have an idea for an episode? Tweet us at Battleground PA or email us at topics at battlegroundpa.org. Meanwhile, stay in the know between episodes on penlive.com. 
Battleground PA is hosted by Penn Live's opinion editor, Joyce Davis, and is produced by Penn Studios director, Salim Michelle McClouf, and edited by Martin Boutros. More info and past episodes can be found at battlegroundpa.org.